Acts 8. Starting in verse 4. Please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us an opportunity to be in your word. I pray that you would bless us and sanctify us and open the eyes of our hearts so we can behold wonderful things from your law. Uh, and God, I just pray that you would um, that you would just help us to understand this passage this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome and a happy New Year's Eve to you guys. My name is Donovan Elvis. I'm a pastoral intern here at Livingstone. And for those of you who haven't been with us these past few months, we've been going through the book of Acts as a church, 
And our text this morning has brought us to a transitional time in redemptive history. But before we dive into that, let's refresh our minds as to what's been going on up to this point. Chapter after chapter, we have watched the gospel continue to expand. The kingdom of God is conquering the land of Jerusalem. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus makes a proclamation that serves as the preface of this entire book. He says that the gospel, the kingdom of God, is going to spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and then, as we'll see this morning, Samaria, and then to the outer ends of the earth. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost descended upon 120 souls, and there was many signs and wonders that took place. People began to speak in tongues, demons were cast out, the deaf could hear, the blind could see, the sick were healed. And above all of those amazing things, in chapter 4, above all that, the love and the fellowship of the church was beginning to shine brighter and brighter throughout the land. Then in chapter 6, we're introduced to a man named Stephen, who began preaching to the Jews in his area, and then he was martyred by their hands. His crime was preaching the name of Jesus Christ. He was the first of many millions of martyrs, Christian martyrs, that were to come. Persecution had started to rise as the gospel continued to rise. And in chapter 8, we're introduced to a man named Saul. I mean, really a little bit before chapter 8, we're introduced to him. Saul, later known as Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament epistles. Luke only gives us a very brief glimpse of him. We see that he was in hearty agreement with Stephen's murder, and that he zealously is taking the lead in the persecution of the church. In verse 3 of chapter 8, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Luke has brought us this far, and then he takes our eyes off of Saul, and we actually don't get back to him until all the way in chapter 9. So briefly in between, in verses 4 through 40, we look at instead three different men. Apart from Peter and John, my math isn't that bad. But the main three men that we'll be looking at are Philip, Simon, and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip, not to be confused with Philip the Apostle, this is Philip the Evangelist, as he'll be getting that title in chapter 21, verse 8. And this isn't our first time seeing Philip. We actually saw him, or his name mentioned, back in chapter 6, when Stephen was installed as a deacon. Philip, Philip's name appears right after him. So it's very interesting, just chronologically, that first we looked at Stephen's story, and now we're moving here to look at Philip's story. And then the other two men, Simon in verses 9 through 24, and the Ethiopian eunuch in 26 through 40, both of these men uh, were evangelized to by Philip's ministry. I'm convinced that the reason why Luke has put this uh, Simon and the Ethiopian eunuch together 
interrupting Saul's narrative, I think he did that because he's trying to show us two contrasting faiths. In the Ethiopian eunuch, we have a humble saving faith. In Simon the magician, we have a proud false faith. There's humble saving faith, and then there's a proud false faith. Now the eunuch we'll be looking at more next week, so that'll be the Last time I mentioned him this morning, but just keep that comparison in mind as we continue through uh, the rest of the chapter. In verse four, we see Philip is forced to flee to the northern regions of Jerusalem, the, to the regions of Samaria, and more specifically, he flees to the capital city. So as persecution is beginning to rise in Jerusalem, the apostles remain there, and then Philip flees north. Give a little bit of historical context. Uh, to say that the Jews hated the Samaritans would be an absolute understatement. I think a good chapter to really see that would be John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. Uh, the disciples were off, they were getting groceries somewhere in the city, and Jesus was giving the gospel to this woman. He was telling her of this living water that she can come and drink freely from. And while he's sharing the gospel with her, the disciples come back with their groceries, drop them on the ground, clutch their pearls, astonished that Jesus was talking with her. They were both these, the Samaritans were both these racial and religious hybrids. They had mixed both of the their Judaism practice and their Gentile practices and blended them together into their own religion. The Jews considered them as apostates. And so John, in parentheses, in John 4, he says the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And the feeling was mutual. The Samaritans hated them back. In Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, Jesus went there to go preach the kingdom of God to the Samaritans, and then they kick him out of the city. They rejected Jesus. Then, as they're, as they're leaving the city, James and John, the very kind sons of thunder that they are, as they're leaving the city, they ask Jesus, Can we, do you want us to just send down fire from heaven? You want us to just eviscerate these people for you, be done with them? So that's not very nice. Um, they, they did not like each other. And Philip likely grew up with this very same animosity towards them. Now, that's reading into the text. So take that with a huge grain of salt. We don't know what Philip's disposition was towards them. But it's very likely that he also grew up with some sort of animosity or dislike towards the Samaritans as the rest of his people. Yet, we see that he is still faithfully preaching the gospel throughout the whole city. The contents of the gospel that he's preaching, in verse 4, he's preaching the word. Verse 5, the Christ. Verse 12, good news, the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ. He was doing all of this while he was under pressure of persecution. He was under the threat of death. And just a little cherry on top, he probably had some animosity. Yet he selflessly 
went about preaching the gospel. That right there is loving your enemy. And there's a little bit of an irony here as we switch from talking about Saul to Philip. You'll notice that Saul in verse 3, he's going house to house to men and women that he hated and he was imprisoning them. And then in verse 12, we see Philip is also going house to house to men and women that he probably wasn't fond of. But yet he was preaching to them freedom in Christ. Saul imprisoning men and women, Philip baptizing men and women. But why should we care? Why should any of this matter? Or a real question, how exactly is this transitional as I open this up to be? I mean, clearly, as we go through Acts, we see that there's, there's a progression, right? The gospel is expanding. But what exactly is changing here? What's so special about this passage? It's special because the Samaritans serve as a bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles. They help us to understand the unfolding picture of the union between Jew and Gentile in Christ. We are one in Christ. There can't be Jewish Christians over here, Samaritan Christians here, and Gentile Christians over there. The plan of the covenant of grace is for the entire world. It was never just for one single race. In Galatians 3, chapter, 20, or chapter 3, verses 28 through 29, Paul says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. How we understand our union in Christ and our union with one another will dictate how we live. And this, this message was an absolutely radical message that Philip was preaching to them. And to affirm his message... And to affirm his preaching, there was signs and miracles. In verse 6, these signs and miracles got the people to pay attention, and rightly so. Whenever you see signs and miracles or anything supernatural in Scripture, it should grab your attention to pay attention to what truth is going to be preached next. One person whose attention was specifically grabbed was a man named Simon. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. Magic was something that was very common in the ancient world and also still practiced today. It was used to supernaturally manipulate nature or one form of magic that is called divination. And with divination, what you're doing, you're trying to see into the future and then control it. Many kings would use magicians as their advisors, especially during wartime, so that way they could get some sort of advantage over their enemies. 
You'll recall back in Exodus, even Pharaoh had magicians. When God was sending his plagues and his signs and miracles, these magicians would try and use their magic arts to discredit God and to discredit Moses' message. These practices, they rely on demonic forces in order to supply them with power. These were not street performers. These were not entertainer magicians that you would see whether you're going downtown or seeing some sort of stage show. Because when, when you go see a stage show and they're doing card tricks and all, all that fancy stuff, there's a mutual understanding between the performer and the audience that what I'm looking at here is sleight of hand. It's some sort of trick. There's a mutual understanding that what I'm looking at is deception. I am paying for you to deceive me and it's all in good fun. That was not the magic that Simon was performing. His magic was there to purposefully deceive the people, and they had no idea they were being deceived. The, the goal was religious control. Now, as I said, there are people today who still practice magic. There, there's Wiccans, witches, wizards. Um, who still practice spells and incantations. Uh, but there's something that has remained consistent from thousands of years ago, ancient magic, to magic that's performed today. And that is that magic is all about self-fulfillment. It is about self-fulfillment. Uh, I, read a, I read an article a couple weeks ago on some Wiccan webpage, which, by the way, I don't recommend that you look that up. Facebook is going to be sending me really weird ads, like $5 off to talk to a demon. No, thank you. I'll pass. Um, so I was looking up this webpage, and uh, there was some prominent uh, witch within the religion who wrote the article, and she, she summed up her religion like this. Magic is about acquiring knowledge, power, love, wealth, and above all, self-fulfillment. It's rooted in human wisdom. It's all about control. It is about idolizing yourself. Such practices are explicitly condemned in Scripture over and over and over again. In Revelation 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, that is, magicians, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There are very serious warnings against doing these things. Now, maybe you don't mess with tarot cards or Ouija boards or palm readings, any of those things. Maybe you don't practice those anymore, or maybe you've never touched them, never done those things. Good. Keep not doing that. It is a good thing to not do and to avoid. But all of those things are merely a fruit of a sin that is deep within the human heart. 
And that deeper sin is pride. Pride is something that we can easily hide in our hearts. We can disguise it with our words and our actions. Simon, well, we see, he, I mean, he happens to be saying the, the quiet part out loud by saying that he is somebody great. Look at me. You just might be a little bit more careful at harboring pride in your heart. Pride is a multi-faced monster. It can appear in our lives in multiple different areas. It appears in your gossip. When you're tearing somebody else's character down. It appears in your bragging, your boasting. Look at me. Look at all the achievements that I've done. Look at all the things that I can do. You're puffing yourself up. It also can appear in your self-pity. Now, this one's a little trickier. Because in your self-pity, it's when you're, you're kind of cowering in the corner, licking your own wounds, and telling people, oh, woe is me, this is, I'm going through like all of these hard things. And what you're doing is you're, you're luring people down to your level so that way they will puff you up, affirm you, or you're fishing for compliments. Now, all three of those things, bragging, gossip, self-pity, the end goal of all of them is exactly the same, that you want to put yourself up on top of the other person, whether it be through uh, some sort of emotional manipulation or something along those lines. I do want to put a disclaimer, though, uh, with, with regards to self-pity. Uh, if you are going through a very difficult trial, something uh, that is really weighing down on your heart, and you go and you share that with a brother or sister in Christ with the intent of them strengthening your faith, that's not the same thing as having self-pity. It's all about intent. Do I intend to be on top or do I want my faith to be strengthened? Do I want to tell you these difficult things so that way you will help me focus on Christ and focus on heavenly things? And the, the last place that I'll mention that's relevant to our text, um, there's other ways that pride can appear in your life, but the last thing I'll mention is it also appears in your reluctance to repent. In your reluctance to repent. That's when you, you recognize your sin, you're confronted with the gospel or you're confronted with truth, and then you decide not to do anything about it. Or worse, you try and justify your sin, defend your sin, and that just results in a hardened heart. Now, Simon had a few of these symptoms. Um, uh, he made a living off of deceiving people, and it didn't bother him one bit. Again, I want to emphasize he was not an entertainer. Rather, he was actually a minister. More specifically, he was a minister of Satan. People worshipped him as if he was a god. In verse 10, it says, This man is the power of God, who is called great. One commentator suggests that this was a divine title that was attributed to him. He was so skilled at his magical arts that people paid attention to him. It's not just that they got a kick out of listening to him, 
but rather it's whatever that he said they did. Whatever he charged for his magic, they paid. And of course, why wouldn't they? After all, if you are surrounded by people who are sick and desperate, and they hear that you have some sort of supernatural ability, they would be willing to do and to pay anything to be able to get some sort of healing, either for themselves or for their loved one. Then Philip comes in, and their ministries collide. And we can actually compare their ministries. In verses 6 and 11, we see both of them performed signs. In verses 6 and 10, both of them had the people paying attention. Verse 11, all the people were amazed with Simon. And then in verse 13, now Simon is amazed with Philip. But here's the key difference in their ministry. In verse 9, we see Simon was preaching himself saying that he himself was somebody great. That word saying, it was a continuous thing. He preached over and over and over again. And then in verse 12, Philip doesn't come into town preaching himself. He comes to preach the name of Jesus Christ. So there are two ministries. They go to battle. It's the word versus self. And... Turns out that the word of God comes on top. Simon sees that he's losing the battle. He's losing his following. And so he does something rather shrewd. He decides to join the church. It says he believes, he's baptized, and he continues following Philip's ministry. All of these things sound really great. Sounds like he's on the right track. But all of this was just a very clever and a very satanic deception. Now, more on that in a moment. We're going to pause and shift to this rather odd event that Luke gives us in verses 14 through 17. In 14 through 17, the, uh, the apostles, Peter and John, come into town to lay their hands on the people so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. I say this is odd because in verse 12, we see that these, the Samaritans, we see that they believed. They're baptized. They seem like they're truly converted. At least there's not any indication in the text that their profession of faith was false, though we'll see Simon's certainly was. There's nothing that indicates that Philip's preaching was insufficient or that he didn't preach the whole gospel. So what's with verse 16? Where it says, for he, that is the Holy Spirit, has not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why didn't the Holy Spirit already fall on them if they were already converted? It doesn't... Doesn't conversion and the Holy Spirit falling on us or indwelling us, don't those two things go hand in hand? Yes. Yes, they do. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 27, 
a passage that's about the, the new covenant, this covenant that their baptism pointed to. In the new covenant, we see this. This is the Lord speaking. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If you are regenerated, if you have new life, it is because the Holy Spirit gives that life to you. Even better, it is the Holy Spirit who is that life within you. Now we see the, this, this action of the laying on of hands. I just want to say that the giving of the Holy Spirit is not dependent upon the grace and the mercy of men laying their hands on you. Rather, it is entirely dependent on the grace and the mercy of God laying his hands on you. The Father and the Son, as we see in John chapter 14, the Father and the Son send the Spirit. Yahweh pours himself on whomever he wishes, and the Spirit is then received through faith. You say, I get that, but Donovan, you totally dodged the question. The question is, if the Samaritans believed, if they were converted, then why didn't the Spirit fall on them too? I think there are three really helpful explanations if you kind of, if you know how these lists go, you know it's the third one that I'm going to be running with. But the first two, I think, really do have merit and are definitely worth mentioning. The first thought is that the people, the Samaritans, they were not converted until Peter and John came and the Holy Spirit descended on them. It's kind of a very surface way to look at the text. They just weren't saved, but once the Holy Spirit came, then, then they were saved. The second explanation is that the Spirit did indwell those who truly believed, but the gifts, such as the gift of tongues, the gifts of prophecy, um, those things weren't given yet. This is, the, this is the view that John Calvin takes. He says this on, the, on this passage. He says, since the Samaritans had the spirit of adoption conferred on them already, the extraordinary graces of the Spirit are added as a culmination. Since the Samaritans had the spirit of adoption conferred on them already, the extraordinary graces of the Spirit are added as a culmination. So they were saved when they believed. They were truly converted. The Spirit did indwell them. But those extra gifts, those came later when the apostles came. The third, and I think the most helpful explanation, is that Jewish Christians needed apostolic affirmation that the Samaritans were a part of the covenant. Jewish Christians needed the apostles to affirm that, yes, indeed, the Samaritans were a part of the covenant. They were true members of the covenant. Now, whatever's going on here, we could say it's, it's abnormal. This isn't how things normally go. And we know that because in verse 16, Luke actually gives us a key word. 
In verse 16, he said he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized. They had only been baptized. That word only implies that usually baptism and the falling of the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. We even saw that in Jesus's baptism. After he was baptized, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Something was off. And so when the apostles in Jerusalem got wind of it, they sent down their top dogs. They sent down Peter and John to go investigate. Now, why did they send two? Well, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, your word is established. There's no record that the apostles did this with uh, every church that was planted around the area. There was thousands and thousands of people being saved. That wouldn't have been practical. But whenever the, there was some sort of really big issue or big dispute that they needed to handle, you can bet that they traveled to go and take care of it. Remember, this was a critical transition in church history. This was something that we'll see uh, Peter also still struggles with in Acts chapter 10. That is, he struggles with the idea that the Gentiles are now also within the covenant. Again, the Jews hated the Samaritans. So the Jewish Christians needed the apostles to show and to affirm, yeah, yes, they, they are our people. We are one with them. The laying on of hands, what that is, that's an outward expression of solidarity and fellowship. In Mark 10, verse 16, Jesus lays his hands on the children and blesses them. In Acts 9, verse 17, Ananias lays his hands on Paul to affirm him. And then in chapter 19, verse 6, the, uh, Paul lays his hands then on the Gentiles in Ephesus. Without this outward affirmation, there very well may have been division in the church. There very well may have been Jewish Christians here, Samaritan Christians here, Gentile Christians over there. But as we saw, God's mission was to reveal to the world that if you are in Christ, there is not Jew or Gentile. There is not slave or free. Christ is not divided. God is not divided. Therefore, you are not to be divided from one another. You are to live in unity together. You are to live as a one people who drink of one cup, who eat of one bread, who are of one faith, one baptism of one spirit. Now, God, for one reason or another, chose to withhold his spirit from the Samaritans, but it was only for a short while. And through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the spirit did fall upon the Samaritans. And then when Simon saw this, he pounced like a lion. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. We don't know specifically what Simon saw, 
Uh, it's possible that he saw people speaking in tongues or prophesying in the name of the Lord. Whatever it might be, Simon saw some sort of physical manifestation of the Spirit coming. And so Simon drooled, and he wanted in on the action. His request in verse 19 just drips with deception. Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter, Peter, you've been, you guys have been doing such a good job. Philip did a really good job here. Why don't you share your power with me? Let me help you with this ministry. After all, I just, I just want these people to receive the Spirit too. And so Peter, with a sigh of relief, goes, thanks, man. You know, we just, had, we just had thousands of people saved the other day. We have this Saul guy who's hot on our tail, just imprisoning our people left and right. You know, we could definitely use the help. Let me go, get, let me go grab John. Let's get this anointing started. No, it's not what he says. Peter says, may your silver perish with you. May your silver perish with you. That is very, very strong language. One, one commentator said that Peter was using fisherman language that I, I won't use up here. He's essentially saying to him, go die with your money. Now, oh, Peter, hang on. You're wasting a perfectly good opportunity here. After all, this guy checks the boxes of all the best ministers. I mean, it helps that he has a lot of money. But look at the following that he has. Millions of people following him. People pay attention to him, so he's got to be a really good speaker. Think about all the good that this man can do for the church. Peter, and God for that matter, they are not concerned with how much influence you have. They're not concerned with how much money that you have. God is concerned about the purity and the character of his church. Money might move the world, but it will not move God. Money might move the world, but it will not move God. You cannot buy God. You cannot buy his gifts. You can't buy the gift of tongues. You can't buy the gift of wisdom. You can't buy the gift of healing. Which, side note, if you're taking notes, here's a little bracket. Uh, this is a very good litmus test that you can use for people who call themselves so-called faith healers. There's other things you can look for, but a couple red flags that you can see. If there's somebody who calls themselves a healer and they're charging money for their healing services, they are charlatans, have nothing to do with them. And another test you can do is ask, do, are they using their gifts to bring attention to themselves or to the gospel? Okay, brackets over. Simon did not give a rip about these people. 
He didn't care if they received the Holy Spirit or not. He wanted people to pay attention to him again. He wanted power over them again. And he was just waiting for the right moment to ask. And praise God, Peter saw right through him. And with those condemning words, he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. That confirms that Simon was never converted to begin with. Yes, it does say in verse 13 that he believed. But keep in mind, in James chapter 2, verse 19, even the demons believed. Simon probably had pretty decent theology. The demons have better theology. They know God better than you do. The issue was is that his heart wasn't converted. He was still in the bond of iniquity. He was imprisoned by his pride. He was, as Peter says, in the gall of bitterness. That word gall is the word for bile, so like stomach bile that breaks down food. He was in a state of decay, dead in his trespasses and sins. Ministry has absolutely no place for men and women who are prideful. This doesn't just pertain to pastors and elders, but this pertains to members as well. To you who serve Christ in whatever capacity, in whatever degree in the church, whether it's greeting at the door, doing communion setup, worship team, or for those of you who host in your homes for community groups, what are your motives for serving? Why are you serving the church? Are you doing it to point attention to you, to show people how good and how moral of a person you are? Or are you doing it for the glory of Christ? Are you doing it to exalt Christ and not yourself? There's warnings in scripture against pride over and over and over again. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. In Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Romans 12, verse 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. James 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And last, Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You can fool men. You can harbor 
pride in your heart that isn't hard to do. Simon did it, and he did it well. He did it so well that Philip had no idea that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was willing to baptize him and welcome him into the church. And that's not Philip's fault, but Simon's for being so satanic. Satan likes to dwell within the church. The tares like to dwell among the wheat. The wolves like to hide among the sheep. Now, beloved, if you struggle with pride, I am not saying that you are a tear among wheat. If you struggle with pride, I am not saying that you are a wolf among sheep. Christians, all Christians, struggle with pride in one degree or another. Christians struggle with pride in one form or another, whether it's gossip, boasting, self-pity, whatever it might be, however it might appear. But the difference between the Christian and the wolf is that if you are a Christian, you are not content with the pride that dwells in your heart. The Holy Spirit will not allow that pride to sit there calmly. You don't relish in your pride, but you put it to death in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ every single day. However, let's not be blind to the fact that there very well could be wolves even in our midst. There very well could be Simons who have crept into the cracks. And I pray that there aren't any. But if there are, then for a moment, Christian, follower of Christ, for a moment I won't be speaking to you, but rather I'm going to speak to any wolves that might be in our midst. This is to those who look at the intentions of Simon and he's, his, his personality, his intentions, those things. You look at him and you say, well, that, that looks a lot like me. This is to those who try and seek influence within the church with evil intent. To you who intend to defile the bride, whether in doctrine or in practice, to try and lead her astray. If that describes you, there are three options for you. You have three options. Option one, leave the church. Leave the church. Weed yourself out of the congregation. If not for the sake of the church herself, then do it for yourself if you care about yourself so much. In Luke chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus warns and says that it is to your benefit, it is better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and for you to be cast into the sea than for you to dare try and lead one of these little ones astray. It is a very dangerous thing to try and lead a Christian astray. So if you have any semblance of wisdom or self-preservation, if you have set your heart to attack the church, 
You'd be wiser to attack from the outside. You're going to lose either way, but you'll hurt yourself a little less. Option two, you stay in the church, be found out, and the church weeds you out, and you rightly bear the shame. So either weed yourself out or be weeded out by the church and rightly bear the shame. The thing about sin and pride and evil intentions, eventually those things will creep up and you will be exposed. It might be five months from now, five years from now, or five decades from now, but eventually your sin will catch up to you and you will go the way of Simon the magician. And option three, and I pray and plead that you would take this option. Repent. Repent. Turn away from your evil intentions. Stop trying to seek your own glory in the church and instead seek the glory of Christ. So now turning back to everyone. Herein lies the hope of our passage. Here is the joy of of our passage, and it could be really easy to miss. In verse 22, Peter calls him to repent. Now, after Peter had said to Simon, may your, sil- may your silver perish with you, Simon should have dropped dead right then and there on the spot. He should have went the way of Ananias and Sapphira, but he didn't. God gave him an opportunity to turn away from his wickedness. What good news this is for us. You who are in bondage to your iniquity, you who are imprisoned by your pride, and to you, Christian, who are acting like you are a slave of sin, when you are no longer a slave of sin, you are a slave of righteousness. That word repent should be the sound of jingling keys from within inside your prison cell. You cannot be freed from sin and pride any other way except for through repentance and faith. John Calvin defines repentance like this. Repentance is the true turning of our life to God. A turning that arises from a pure and an earnest fear of him. It consists in the mortification of our flesh of the old man and the vivification of the spirit. Repentance is the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and an earnest fear of him and of putting to death the old man and coming alive in the Holy Spirit. True repentance is when we stop blaming others, stop blaming our circumstances for our sin, but we only blame ourselves. We confess, that is, that we agree that we are guilty before a holy God, and we bow humbly before his throne and ask him for forgiveness. If you are in the bonds of iniquity, those bonds cannot be broken by human hands. That's why Peter commands Simon to pray. Pray. Ask God that he would forgive the intents of your heart because only the Lord can break those fetters of sin and pride. 
Don't do what Simon does. Simon's response in verse 24 is a poor response. Where he says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Now, that could have been said cynically. Um, as in, you know what, you, the NASB says, you know, pray for me yourselves. You know, you, you pray for me. I'm not going to do it. Or he could have been saying it in genuine fear and terror, like cowering, like, okay, all right, well, you, you, you pray for me. No, Simon. No. Peter commanded you to pray to the Lord. Now, it's fine to ask people to pray for you. That's fine. However, remember that your pastor can't repent for you. Your elders can't repent for you. Your friends and family can't repent for you. You are responsible to go to the Lord in repentance. You are responsible to go to the throne naked and alone. Let's not forget that your repentance must always be married with faith, with true faith. And we'll close with this. Simon did believe. He believed some information about the gospel. He had some semblance of faith, but he did not have saving faith. He had a faithless faith, as the title of this sermon says. But you, you can have a true faith. You must go to the Lord with a pure heart, with pure motives. You can't go to him and ask him for his throne or his glory because he won't share those things with you. But if you go to him with pure motives and you seek his glory, ask for wisdom, he will give it. Ask for grace and he will give it. Ask for mercy and forgiveness of your sins. He will give it. As we saw in Ezekiel 36, ask that your heart of stone may be turned into a heart of flesh. He will do it for you. Ask to be sanctified and to be made more like his son, Jesus Christ, and he will do it for you. Why? Because those things don't exalt you. They exalt him. They bring him glory. Thinking again of the Samaritan woman in John 4, when Jesus was giving her the gospel, he offered her living water, living water without cost. That invitation is extended to us as well, that we would come to him and come and drink in faith. Return to the Lord and he will restore you. Let's pray. Lord, our God, thank you that you incline your ear to humble hearts. You are a God who delights in mercy. For any of us here that have hard hearts in any degree, we ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us hearts of flesh so that we might delight in you. We praise your holy name. Amen.